I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Cambridge Arts Roundup, where we'll take you away from these troubled times to Ireland and visit a sub-aqua environmental artist. We'll find out about what it takes to do portraiture with a Cambridge artist, get to grips with an arts collective and hear about a local filmmaker. In this programme, award-winning artist and coastal ecologist Vincent Highland takes us beneath the waves with his marine and environmental work in Derrynan, Ireland. Cambridge artist Heloise Toop talks on creating her special brand of striking portraits. We visit this Changes Everything exhibition with artist Sarah Strachan from Cambridge School of Art, which took place earlier on in the year. And artist Karen Ng talks about her films at the recent Motion Sickness exhibition in the Lion Yard. Back in the pre-crisis world of last September, I went to visit family and cousins in the southwest of Ireland at the end of the Kenmare Estuary, in the beautiful setting of a small town called Cahadaniel, close to the sea harbour of Derrynan. We were fantastically lucky with a good stretch of late-season hot weather and unusually warm seas, so I put on a wetsuit and went snorkelling along the coast in a few places to look at the abundant marine life, which is something I often did as a youngster during family holidays. It's a coastline well known for bountiful fishing, beach barbecues and trips to the Skellig Islands, which are two enormous stone outcrops 22 kilometres off the coast, one of which has a monastery on it and the other a bird sanctuary. The islands are famous for their undersea aqualung diving and some 60-plus species of fish. It's also where they shot scenes with Luke Skywalker in the latest episode of Star Wars. In the past, there was so much to see under the waves, it was a constant fascination for those keen on diving and fishing. But as I found out, all is not well, as the fantastic, clean, rich, abundant and healthy marine life that was is now seriously under threat by climate change, overfishing by factory ships and extensive marine pollution. I dropped in to meet award-winning multimedia artist, coastal ecologist, wildlife guide, photographer and underwater filmmaker Vincent Highland at his studios to find out what's happened. Vincent, uh, you do lots of things here. Um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, yeah, I do quite a lot of things, but I think when you come to live in a place like this, which is in the southwest of Ireland, it's quite isolated, so it doesn't have the benefit that a city brings in the context of employment and services like for getting around and things like that. So down here, you tend to have to apply yourself to a lot of different things. So most people here would have two or three jobs. In my case, I probably have five or six, and they're all different hats, and they have happen at different times of the week and also at different times of the day so one in the morning I could be uh, walking or today like I was diving actually taking photographs underwater but then in the afternoon I could be walking people around the environment interpreting that environment or in fact uh, I could be up the country giving a talk to a group of people in relation to climate change or plastic pollution and stuff like that. Now you went on a dive today what did you discover? Today's dive I specifically went around a particular island into about maybe 25 uh, foot of water not too deep but I just wanted to record what was there in the context of uh, marine plastic pollution. So I've dived this spot for over 44 years now and I've seen it transition, if you like, from an area that was full of biodiversity. Lots of flatfish in the sand, lots of uh, fish swimming overhead like uh, bass, sometimes salmon, lots of sand eels, lots of mackerel, lots of wrass, lots of spider crabs, lobsters, crayfish, stuff like that. And I've seen that essentially disappear and being slowly replaced then with plastic. And that's really the reality. So today I was recording that just uh, as I have been over the last many, many years. 
And that transition then is, a, I suppose, a record of just what's happening to the environment on a very local level. So that whole span of 44 years is very valuable now. Didn't set out to be in the context of me starting to record the area's biodiversity, but that's now what it's become. You were showing me some photographs of just today, what you found today. What did you find today? Mostly I found uh, bits of plastic. I found a starfish, for instance, just on top of a golf ball. And I'm not sure whether it was gnawing it or eating part of it, but it looked like that it was worn away on one side. I found spider crabs with fishing rope uh, wrapped around them, plastic sticking out, them actually eating on, on, on top of that. And also then small little animals that would be in amongst the plastic and it seemed as if they were actually eating them. They're called isopods. They're a little bit like the uh, the woodlouse that, that we get at home, except they're marine. You know, I've also seen some other things like in, in the past in particular, a lot of seabirds that, that would have uh, kind of washed up ashore and working with scientists up the West Coast when they opened their stomachs full of plastic. In terms of the biomass in the bay, for instance, you would probably see decade upon decade a vast collapse in the overall biomass of uh, the system here of the Kenmare, Kenmare River, Kenmare Bay, and subsequently then the knock-on knock effect that that would have in terms of species and species abundance. So I think we've been slowly ploughing up the environment and probably maybe through uh, plastic pollution, altering the chemistry of the water somewhat, that it becomes untenable then for a lot of the species uh, to survive. But when you factor in then the other things like uh, the overfishing, you tend to get a seascape that's kind of denuded of, of, of most of the life that you would have seen when you were here originally. Uh, now that, that really is a tragedy. And what about in the tremendous diving around Skelligs, which is famous all over Europe? What's happened there? Because you, you dive out there too, don't you? Yeah, so the most recent dive I did there was about five weeks ago. A little bit similar again, you know, it just tends to be, it still has it has the most beautiful um, un underwater scenery and there are seals there and, you know, there are, there are, there are lobsters, uh, crayfish hanging on, but nothing in the context of the abundance. And particularly when you look at big fish like big pollock or even ling on the bottom, it's generally very, very difficult to see that in abundance uh, anymore. So that's that in effect has, has disappeared from uh, Skelligs, you know, as a dive site. Um, now looking around your studio here, which has got lots of splendid marine photographs it's got paintings <laughs> you've got postcards you've got landscapes seascapes everything else tell me a little bit about the work you've got here so a lot of the work that uh, i undertake is influenced by the sea so if i was a uh, steve zizou i suppose i would be or am living the life mm. aqu aquatic so it's highly influenced mm. uh, by that so where that came from was more or less as a as a child my father was big into the sea my uncle was big into the sea and i started to illustrate fish as a a very young age so I was always doodling and drawing but mm. it was always marine stuff mm -hmm. and when I came down here on holidays a little bit like yourself Simon you know you just you fell in love with the place you felt uh, you know the, the the natural beauty of this place and the wildness and the fact that I could roam free then a lot of what you see here is my interpretation of of that world of that natural world with a very very strong leaning towards the water now, how big is environmentally concerned art in Kerry generally? Because obviously you're very concerned with it. It means a lot to you. But are there lots of other artists who are um, trying to basically make people aware of what's going on here? Very, very few tend to be uh, quite isolated in that regard, mm. you know, and it's 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 indicative really of just the you know the general perception county Kerry has a relatively small population you know compared to you know some of the cities for instance 
But, you know, all that, I suppose the background here is mostly farming. And, and at the moment now it's subsistence farming. So a lot of people, as I said earlier on, they've got two or three jobs. Their focus is not on the environment, even though from a touristic perspective, they make their living during the summer from the natural beauty. There's very little correlation, if you like, between what's happening to their environment and, you know, in terms of real thing, turning your maybe turning a blind eye towards it because, you know, you have to make a living out of it. You don't want to kill the golden goose. People aren't doing enough, are they, anywhere around here uh, in order to save the environment? Yeah, I, th- I think, again, we have tried. We, we've we've had some uh, girls in, in the local secondary school in, in Kenmare, for instance, that got involved in this uh, climate action group, you know, but they were a very, very small group of girls and even their school kind of poo-pooed it in the context of them get, getting involved. They went out on the street and took time off school to actually pro- protest and we joined them. But when you look at the amount of people that joined those protests every Friday, it was mm. very, very small. Mm. And a lot of the uh, the local councillors stayed away because they didn't want to be seen, you know, aligning themselves with such a movement. Because again, everybody around here seems to turn a blind eye to what's really happening. And you, you mark my words, in 50 years' time, this place will be, be a national park where bus tours just co- come around and people just look at a landscape, but there'll be nothing in the landscape. Well, that must set alarm bells ringing to environmentalists. Now, we're going to have a look at some of your sure, images here. Sure, so, sure. this is one of your paintings. Yeah. What does that depict? It's- this is a room, painting of a room, looking through windblown curtains and straight out into my favourite view here, which is that. Derry Nan. So I painted that just to remind myself that I don't actually have to live right on that spot, but I can imagine what it would be like to have a room there. And it looks beautiful. And, and we've got lots and lots of um, photographic material of things like fishes, octopuses, <laughs> birds, dolphins, hares, mm. and then some tremendous photograph, photographs of seascapes, which, of course, uh, these are things which you can um, reproduce, blow up and sell to people That's, in all kinds of different sizes. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the one we're looking at here is, is a, a wave on one of the beaches here, Long Beach, and the waves can get quite high there. In fact, they're, they're surfable this one that you're looking at uh, at the time was about 15 feet high but sometimes what I do and, th- and this was late October I just get in my, my my snorkeling gear and I put on my mask and fins and my wetsuit and I go out and just get trashed around in the waves body surfing body surfing exactly yeah. and this was of the sun setting so you can see just on the crest of the waves the sun is ca- catching the setting sun there's lots of amazing underwater images here I can see lovely jellyfish anemones lobsters all kinds of things seaweed it's a, a kind of a rare fish. Yeah, so um, I've done a lot of night dives yeah. and, and I've recorded biodiversity at night just to see what comes out at night underwater. And I read somewhere that you could actually get some uh, blue lights, put yellow barrier fit filters on your mask and, uh, and also on the camera and go out and see see what animals fluoresce. Mm. So this is a pic- picture of a fluorescing uh, scorpion fish mm. so there are scorpion fish around the place but nobody ever really saw them fluorescing so this is probably one of the first fluorescent photographs of scorpion fish tremendous uh, variety of, um, of marine things and you've also got things like butterflies and underwater scenes this is an underwater scene that you painted with some fish where did that come from uh, so again in my head just to actually paint the ba- the base scene of something that some place that was a little bit more tropical i suppose mm. kind of less less uh, less emerald green here so this this is one uh, kind of i'm working on at the moment and i'm not finished but i don't know what to do with yeah. it but something will ha- happen with 
with it at some stage when, when I get it in my head. Mm. Okay, now, uh, one of the most interesting things that you're doing here, which uh, I've only seen for the second time, was um, using augmented reality on your mobile phone to make things in your studio far up with film if you lay them over. Can you explain how that works? Uh, yeah, so in a nutshell, augmented reality is, is a technology that fundamentally changes your relationship with, with reality. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's usually where you place a mobile phone running an app that yeah. turns on your camera on the phone. And when you put the camera of the phone up in front of an image or an object, mm. it gives you additional information. So rather than just stare at a photograph of a fish, I can go and I can uh, show that, put the phone up to it, and then you'll actually see the fish move. Yeah. So you will. And, and, and that's the kind of the next iteration for me now is, is to bring this technology outdoors so, so that we'd, we'd, I'd have a ser- series of, of pieces on, on, on poles call them sculptures, whatever it mean, you know, and in the case of the octopus, for instance, that there would be a picture of an octopus on a pole facing the exact location where it was filmed, and then you just hold the phone up, and then you can actually see underwater there. Mm-hmm. So it's to use it like that. Now, those, those films that you're using, are they your films? All, you, all my films. They're, they're Sorry, all your own big films. archive, yeah. So those are really exciting things to, to have a look at, the underwater world of, um, of Kerry. That was Vincent Highland at his studio in Cajadano. In a period in time when we all have to sit at home and reinvent ourselves for post-lockdown reality, the gentle art of portraiture seems like an appealing idea in a family setting, and you might just discover that you have a talent for it. Well, there are a few people in Cambridge who are as good at it as artist Heloise Toop, whose paintings adorn walls in many of the city's homes and university department buildings. She kindly gave me an interview to talk about how it's done. Eloise, um, lovely to see you again after so long, after visiting your studio some time ago and talking to Arts Roundup uh, um, a little bit about your paintings. Um, great to have you back. First of all, um, for our listeners, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you come to be an artist and what's your background? Well, I've always been interested in art. When I was younger, I used to paint my dad a lot, really realistically and quite unflatteringly but he was always very encouraging so I was always really interested in faces and through encouragement from my parents and some really good art art teachers at Netherhall um, I decided that that was what I wanted to do. Tell me a little bit about your your backdrop Um, where did you go to art school what did you do? I went to the Heatherleys School of Art in Chelsea and I studied a two-year portraiture diploma Mm. where we focused on figurative art and oil paints. Yeah, I finished that in 2008 and since then I've been doing commissions regularly and painting in my own time. Are you yourself very much a people watcher? Yes, I find people really interesting. I don't know if I'm one of those people that sits in cafes and watches people. I find that a bit strange. (laughs) But I do like human behaviour. I find really interesting and I like hearing about people lives and what makes people tick so yes as people get older they tend to become you know you, you lose this um residual residual self-image of yourself as this young person of 25 um and gradually as you get older your face matures and everything and your body changes and you become something of a, um, a caricature of the person that you were um and your personality goes into that is that something that intrigues you as a portrait artist because the way that you do your portraits um, in a kind of accentuate certain things in people's faces. I've never really thought about that. Uh, I find that children are very hard to paint because they don't have a lot of character in their faces. Uh, but I guess people do change from 25 onwards. Generally, yeah, you do get a, a lot more character in an older face. I'm not 100% sure why that is, but um, 
I do agree. When you um, manage to, to persuade someone to sit for you, when you find a, a face that interests you, what happens when you paint? So I, what, like the process? Yeah, I mean. yeah, yeah. Um, So I'll, I'll draft it all out. I'll usually do a pencil drawing and then I will put in kind of light and dark tones in like a limited palette. And then when I'm happy with the structure of that, I will then start to put colours on top. So that's my technique. Do you paint celebrities at all? Do you paint famous people? I have painted people in the public eye before, but I don't like painting celebrities from photos that someone else has taken. So I only want to paint a celebrity if I've met that celebrity and taken my own photos of them or met them personally. I don't think you get a good and realistic kind of impression of someone from someone else's photo you have to meet them and compose it from start to finish or you kind of lose that freedom what have been your major successes in terms of your national recognition so i i was on the front page of the independent on sunday because i was part of an exhibition of artists that didn't make it into the bp portrait award one year um, and we decided to make our own exhibition and it actually got a lot of attention so um they picked mine for the front cover which was a pretty awesome moment um yeah walking into the garage picking that up and telling the cashier that it was me on the front uh, liked that <laughs> is there other things that you particularly notice about people as a portrait artist when they sit are there things that they always do or funny things that they do or things that impress you or things that affect the way that you work is, is that anything that happens you can tell straight away if someone's feeling awkward when they come to sit for a portrait because they'll be really hunched over and won't know where to look and they'll have a really tense mouth so uh, you have to kind of ease people into it so mainly I just can tell if someone's confident in it or not um, but in the end everyone's always confident it just takes a bit of a while to ease into it. So um, do you work with photographs of people? I mean, what, once you start, they sit for you, you presumably take a photograph of them in order to um, finish off the work. Is that something that you, you usually do? Yeah, so um, what I what I actually do is it's all from photos, but I do meet the people. So they'll come in and we'll take about 50 or 60 pictures and we'll try various positions, poses, um, lighting, and then I'll pick about 10 of those pictures and send them over and they'll pick from that selection the one that they want immortalized I did used to paint from life at art college but I I found that people are just so busy they don't generally want that so so when you set to work do you, do you work at a fast pace or is it a slow pace that you work at it really depends on the medium and the size so if I'm doing a small acrylic portrait that can be done within a week or so if I have nothing else on but uh, oils, because they take a long time to dry and you have to do it in stages, it is like building. It can take months, and especially with big ones and detailed backgrounds, that can really take a long time as well. Right, so I'm um, developing character. Do, do, you, um, do you make amazing discoveries when you're characterising someone past what is real into uh, an artwork? Is there things that you discover about um, faces or techniques or anything else like that that, that kind of... Um, people might find interesting I, don't know. Um, I guess once you start painting a portrait it really can take a long time for it to start to look like the person and it is really frustrating and I think that's why people think it's so hard um, but you do just have to keep at it and sometimes it's something as subtle as the crease by a mouth or a highlight or the way the hair's fallen or something tiny that you would never think will catch someone but, but it is just that minimal sometimes 
what makes someone look like them. Now, where can people see your work? Obviously, there must be quite a lot of it in Cambridge, uh, isn't there? Uh, yeah, you'd have to go around some houses, I think, to see. Um, the nature of my work is bespoke commissions mainly, so um, it's people's families, uh, kids, things like that. Um, but you can see one in Maddingley Hall. There's one of uh, the ex-director of Maddingley Hall, Professor Lingwood, and that's there indefinitely. And then there's one of Michael Green in the Department of Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics as well that will hang there indefinitely too. So if you're in those areas. And of course your website. And my website, yes, <laughs> where everything is always there. So, so what's the web address for that? Uh, it's www.eloisetoop.com. Eloise Toop, thank you very much indeed for sparing some time to talk to Arts Roundup. Thank you very much for having me. A recent foray to see a chapter in Motion Sickness Collective Season was interesting as I watched children engage with artwork that was made especially for them. A series of wooden honeycombs featured removable objects which could be handled, but it wasn't clear whether or not you should dare to. Tempted kids also picked up on a clay sculptural table that let them experiment, and I stood and watched them get to grips with some fascination and let their imaginations loose on the clay after watching the wall screen films. Cambridge School of Art's Sarah Strachan, co-curator of This Changes Everything exhibition, took me through some of the artwork on display. Can you give me the background to this exhibition? What's it designed to do? We've got the opportunity to be using the Motion Sickness project space, which is very unusual in Cambridge to have kind of more experimental and open kind of space to exhibit. We're all students at Cambridge School of Art, either BA or all the way through MA, and really it's just an opportunity for us to exhibit off-site. We're looking at a couple of very interesting films here, which I gather are your creation. They are indeed, yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me about these. It looks like someone who's disastrous with origami, um, who's folding a piece of paper over and over again, and someone who's disastrous with clay pottery. What's going on? <laughs> well, I am a potter. I'm a ceramic and that's my kind of chosen medium. But this is really an exploration about materials. It's really asking us as, as a human race, like how we deal with materials. So they're both resources from the world that we live in. Some resources we cherish and treasure, like ceramics and kind of precious objects and other things that we throw away. So we might screw up paper and throw it away. But I'm also fascinated by the fact that we, we're more likely to recycle paper if it's flat, whereas if it's scrunched up, we wouldn't. Okay, so you've only got you've got films of people's hands manipulating these paper and clay. Uh, why did you focus on the hands? Do you find hands particularly interesting? I think hands are very much what defines us as humans, and also they're very sensuous parts of the body. So for me, they're a really a, a way that I interface with materials, and they're what I use for my practice essentially. So that's why they're important. Um, if we move over here, can we just have a look at this? Um, I find this painting by Fiona Blake, um, 2019, particularly interesting because it, it, it depicts a, a street scene, which I imagine must be in Cambridge, um, a beautifully bright, affluent-looking shop front, and then obviously a homeless person um, sleeping in the middle of it. Mm. Can you tell me the background to that sort? Um, yeah, so homelessness is a, is a big part of Fiona's life because she's a trustee of a charity in Cambridge here. This is a scene in Mill Road, um, it's actually Barney's, which is a fairly famous shop that I think anyone who's lived in Cambridge for a long time kind of knows exactly where it is. And it's really about finding shelter wherever you can. And as you say, there's a, a shop window with a beautiful depiction of architecture that's very, very Cambridge. It's very kind of grand and it's a stark contrast to what you see in the foreground, which is essentially a sleeping bag and somebody having made a shelter in a shop 
Um, and, and I was looking at that very beautiful abstract on the wall, a little bit earlier. Who's that by? So that's by Rochelle Potter, and she is very much a painter who paints with emotion and feeling, and so they're very much kind of her outpouring onto a canvas. Yeah. Is she here this evening? She is coming come later, hopefully. She's been baking cakes, I think that's why she's, <laughs> she's not here. So yeah, we've all been trying to have a sort of more sustainable view of a private view, and so bringing our own kind of creations and drinking out of jam jars and that kind of thing. <laughs> Okay, now there's a shocker exhibit here, which is a full-size electric chair with a set of headphones um, on it as a mock-up of an American electric chair. Mm -hmm. Whose idea was that and what's that about? So that's uh, another artist of ours who's in the second year, and he was very much um, obviously part of the exhibition. We thought it was important to kind of have it sort of fairly front and foremost in the... uh, in the exhibition to get people to come in and essentially kind of engage. It's very, it's a very sort of controversial and uh, interesting kind of sculpture. Uh, we've had all sorts of people sitting in it, mums, children, um, an interesting conversation about what it might be. <laughs> Are heartlessness and compassion two things that are being expressed here in some way? Very much so. Um, I think as, as artists, we're all very much engaged with you know the here and now and the society that we're living in and reflecting that within our work. Well, Motion Sickness Collective move unit in the Lion Yard and continued to exhibit work by 40 artists right up until the current crisis. I encountered exhibiting artist and filmmaker Karen Ng, who's bringing film to a Cambridge audience in three pieces which were visually interesting, incorporate silent dance and make meditations on vivid and meaningful emotional experiences. Karen Ng explains. You've got three films here. Can you tell me what they're about and what inspired They're a sort of moving image, a poetic vignettes. Mm. They're sort of meant to be distillations of, of what I was feeling at the time or, or capturing an idea. And one of them is about, that I made in 2019, was a, was a meditation on Agnes Varda's work. It was filmed in Paris outside her house and at the cemetery where she was just, was just buried because she had just died four weeks before. And it's sort of um, just trying to pay respects to her. Tell me about who she is and, and what, what's her story, Agnes. Agnes Varda was one of the original New Wave filmmakers from France. Yeah. And she was, I think, the only female or one of, one of maybe two women filmmakers from that era. And she was kind of looked, glossed over by history. But she has always maintained, she's always been active as an artist. Even until her 90th birthday, I think she was still working and her last film was yet to come out when she died. So I was inspired by her as an older artist. Um, just starting out that gave me inspiration that I could actually possibly carry on making art until I die. So what's the second film about? One of the films is called Voyage. It's a collaboration with another artist named Raisa Braslava who's from Latvia. She was going through um, a transition point in her life and we were out in the countryside near Oxford and we decided to do a, a dance film about what she was going through and so it's sort of a meditation on that. And it's a silent film and it basically shows a woman taking a journey from one place to the other and it sort of takes you on an emotional journey with her. Is that quite a challenge, making a silent film that is very meaningful and, 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 and the plot is um, uh, visibly understandable without any sound? I didn't intend to not have any sound. We did have music at first, but when I was editing it together, I felt that the, the, it was more distracting to have music or sound in the background and I decided that the narrative made more sense as a silent dance. Uh, it looks very beautiful, someone someone moving around very gracefully. I mean, I, I haven't watched the whole thing, but it, it, it looked very engaging. And what about film number three? 
Film number three is just a tiny vignette and it's a nod to Cambridge because it was um, shot on Beltane in 2014. Uh, at St. Peter's Church, which is, of course, right next to Kettle's Yard. A great show. Thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge 105. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I hope you enjoyed this edition of Cambridge Arts Roundup, and I'll be back when at all possible with more art stories. Cambridge 105 Radio.